I almost forgot what the theme song throughout the film was. Yes. That would have been really sad. They'll go marching. They will go marching on. One by one. Ta-da, ta-da. <laughs> God damn. All right. Well, pour my beer. Leave me alone. <laughs> About the end. Pour my drink. <laughs> I'm going to buy you a drink. I'm going to buy you a drink. Welcome to the Nightmare Box, presenting Mistakes Were Made. My name is Brett Bloom. I'm sitting across from the beautiful, the effervescent, the fresh hungover. off work, the hungover, the, uh, uh, the beautiful, the effervescent, <laughs> Kristen Bloom. That bitch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that bitch. <laughs> you jackass. <laughs> Kristen and I were up late because they released Mafia. <laughs> like an updated version of that old 2002 video game and I couldn't put it down and then we looked up and it was 11 o'clock we were hammered on wine and Kristen had to work this morning so. yeah did not feel great yeah so she was not thrilled but we are here today ladies and gentlemen to kill this podcast with a vengeance to kill this podcast with a motherfucking vengeance we are here today to talk about die hard number three die hard with a vengeance in our little series that is kind of a teaser for what we want to do with the patreon stuff eventually yeah hopefully i sound smarter than though <laughs> <laughs> when did this come out Rebel? this came out in 1995 did you know before we even get into it that it was the highest grossing film of 1995 it did because it, wikipedia felt the need to tell me a bunch <laughs> but it beat out toy story that year I toy story came that. in number two like toy story one yeah the first Toy Story was 1995, and it got beat out by Die Hard with a Vengeance. Huh. That's pretty wild. Okay. And so... <laughs> I was reading the thing. It's, it's always a bad bad printout. I was like, what's the poster say? Think fast, look alive, die hard. Die hard with a vengeance. All right, then. All right. <laughs> uh, Gotta gear her up, team. This is how it works oh, on I, work days. I, you made me drink on I lives. didn't make you do shit. And then I had a hang all day and it was busy so i didn't get to drink any water <laughs> that's my 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 wasted white girl problems wasted white girl um got a cute shirt on though oh thank you you're welcome I so wore, die hard with a vengeance <laughs> i wore this exact same outfit to work like one day and they told me i looked like a pumpkin spice latte because my have my pants are orange. oh you're <laughs> i have a, a brown and white top so it's like the latte with the foam. Hell yeah. Anyway, those are fun facts for you guys <laughs> who can't see my outfit. Uh, <laughs> uh, kind of a shockingly low critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. The I was critics, blown away by it, yeah. Again, I think this is the lowest one yet, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the critics gave it a 59%. The audience, on the other hand, quite liked it with an 83. Exactly. Where do you uh, sit with it? Uh, probably... 7580. Yeah. That that low? Yeah. Because in my head it's like no. I I gave Die Hard a, a either a perfect score or a 98. Like I gave it a really really high one. This is my favorite sequel to Die Hard out of all of the sequels to Die Hard and any of the movies that, you know, borrowed the formula to create Die Hard-esque films. And I would give this one like that steady maybe 88 to 95. Yeah, I, I fucking love Die Hard. I probably wouldn't go any <laughs> higher than 85. Um, IMDb gave it a 7.6. I didn't write down, just because we haven't been doing it for these, uh, fun facts about stuff any of these people had been in, because it's fucking Bruce Willis. (laughs) Who doesn't know what Bruce Willis has been in? And Samuel motherfucking Jackson. (laughs) Uh, This was directed by John McTiernan. Yep, John McTiernan. He's the director of the first Die Hard movie, and this is the only sequel that he directed. So he didn't direct Die Hard 2. He came back for 3 and then stepped out and hasn't been back yet. Um, also produced a, the screenplay was by Jonathan Hensley. Uh, apparently, uh, it's based on, I think it was a book if I'm remembering right, called mm. Simon Says. It was a screenplay he'd screenplay. written. Yeah, for Simon Says. It was later turned into a book. 
That's right. Yeah, because yeah, I was I was like I was reading about it being a book later on, but yeah, I guess that was after the movie came out. But anyway, yeah, uh, based on a book called Simon Says, because lo and behold, her <laughs> bad guy's name is Simon. Um, budget was ninety million. Once again, crushed it. <laughs> Did three hundred and sixty-six point one million in the box office. So. Fuck yeah. Definitely a franchise that you want your finances tied to, apparently, <laughs> because they are crushing it even when their sequels suck. Yeah. So, do we want to do the synopsis? Yeah. All right. Whenever you're ready. Or am you're I doing? running this ship. I'm you're running the, the ship. I'm, I mean, I'm trying. You're the diehard person. <laughs> you All right. So, this is the greatest sequel in the Die Hard series. I'll fight any of you. Number two is the worst, and I haven't seen number five. So, maybe number two beats out number five, but I'm I've seen one through four, bit. and three is the best. Um, <clears throat> so, we've got John McClane, who we know from our other movies. Um, he is for the first time in New York City. He's in his home stomping grounds. And then there's this crazy, um, surprise, surprise, German-esque European terrorist who wants to fuck up his day. So John has recently been separated from Holly McLean of the first time. He's called her in a year. Yeah. (laughs) So he's going through some marital struggles. He's uh, developed an alcoholism that we'll see throughout the remainder of the films um, in this kind of personal divide. He gets into it with uh, Simon, Simon Gruber, brother of Hans from the first film and the best bad guy with the exception of Hans in the series. One Hans Gruber. Yeah. And um, he meets Samuel L. Jackson's character, Zeus. At the very beginning of the film, Zeus is a, would you call him a a, a militant-minded black rights guy? Yeah, he said uh, he modeled his character's dress, at the very least, after Malcolm X. Yeah, so he's in that more militant mind state of black, you know, adult in the city in the mid-90s. In the inner city. In the inner city, where he can't trust white people. He teams up with a cop in what becomes one of the craziest buddy cop films of all time, because they hate, or Samuel Jackson hates him. <laughs> I like that neither of them is really, like, the comedic relief, though. Like, yeah. Bruce Willis has, like, his little lines and stuff, but, um... Uh, there's that movie, Blue Streak, that, uh... Shoot, what is that actor's name? Oh, man, he was in Bad Boys, but not Will Smith, the other guy. Martin Lawrence? Yeah, Martin Lawrence. Um, He, uh, I think he's a cop in Blue Streak, but he is like a character who's kind of like the comedic relief in Mm -hmm. a lot of the movies he does. So it's like kind of this silly, like bumbling cop-esque character who keeps finding himself in these situations. I like that they didn't do that for either of these characters. Mm-hmm. They're both like, we gotta get this shit done, and then just shit keeps happening to them. Yeah, and I also like that they, and we can get more into it, but that they avoid the dynamic of Lethal Weapon, where the race is never really addressed um, until um, the comedian, Chris... Rock? Rock shows up in one of the sequels, and he's, you know, more of the, come on, no white man! You, know? <laughs> but you get this Samuel L. Jackson, this militant... Uh, combination that occurs in this buddy cop film. And along the way, Simon is doing his game of Simon Says. He's giving them riddles and math problems and jugs of water. And if you're curious about the jugs of water, I've got an explanation. I I will explain it. Um. I read one too. It finally made sense to me. I was like, oh, I get it. They did a real bad job of shooting (laughs) it, but I get it. And then we um, learn that Simon is going to blow up a building that's, you know, got he's going to blow up a school that's got, like, the kids from the beginning of the film that Samuel L. Jackson has to protect. Psych, no, we're stealing all the money from the fucking Federal Reserve, and we're fucking off. And then McLean shows up and blows a dude up in his helicopter and says, yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker, roll credits. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> um, I didn't write down what any of these people are in, so we're just kind of kind of... Skim characters, because we've addressed this already. The Die Hard movies have a lot of extra white people in them. Yeah, we'll hit the main ones. So first and foremost, John McClane. Lo and fucking behold, played by Bruce Willis. You could see him in the last two fucking Tuesdays Mm -hmm. that we've done. Uh, Then we have Jeremy Irons. He plays Simon Gruber. Simon Peter Gruber. Simon Peter Gruber. What a biblical name. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he's our main villain. You got Samuel Jackson. He plays Zeus Carver. He's the good Samaritan. Got Graham Greene as Detective Lambert. 
yeah, I didn't write anything down about any of these people because the cops are kind of interchangeable. Oh, you've been a big bracket, so I thought I'd well, go ahead. Am I going through them? Yep. Okay. Um, then you got Colleen Camp, plays Detective Connie. Uh, Kowalski. Larry Brigman plays Inspector Cobb. Anthony Peck plays Detective Walsh. Nick Wyman plays Matthias Targo. And Sam Phyllis as Katya. Um, yeah, the brackets to link Jeremy and Sam together. Uh, Katya's uh, Gruber's love interest in this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I was trying to figure out, but the IMDb was kind of vague, and so was the Wikipedia, which cop is the cop that dies, because I feel like that's the only cop that really deserves honorable mm-hmm. mention. Because I was like, oh, that's a cute establishing moment where um, his badge number is the lottery numbers he keeps playing. Yeah. And then Bruce sees the badge on someone else, and he's like, oh, God, he's dead, you know? Yeah, you so. killed my boy, and then he fucks everybody up yeah. in that elevator. <laughs> um, and I will, I will say, of everything that goes on in this movie, that's maybe my one complaint, is that I don't necessarily feel like the relationships are flushed out as much as I would like. Okay. Um, I think that's a really impactful moment, because this character dies very early into the movie and to us it's kind of like ah yeah because they were all talking Mm -hmm. about their lottery numbers together and you can tell they all play the lottery hoping to like kind of better themselves and um the situations that they're in but uh that one cop's the only one that's like oh yeah i play my same number every time and i didn't even realize until they showed the badge that it was his badge number Mm -hmm. he was playing oh you missed the reveal when the the silent guy like kind of sticks it well, in. Well, no, I saw him stick it. Numbers. I saw him stick it in, but I guess I didn't realize until they showed it up close in the elevator oh. and Bruce saw the numbers that that was the lottery number he kept playing. Like I knew it was that guy. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize it was his badge number he kept playing, and that was kind of a moment where it was like, oh, because like you know, in Bruce's mind, he's like, you killed my dude. Yeah, yeah. you killed one of my fucking like, friends. <laughs> like it's, I'm gonna kill you all. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was well done. I have a bit of a complaint about the fact that we bothered to establish um, the kids that come into the shop to try to sell Zeus the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like trying to like be like, get off the streets, get in school, get your shit yeah. together, you know. And then they end up being the kids that get locked in the school building later in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um and it doesn't feel as important because Zeus doesn't know that they're locked in the building. Like True. Like yeah. We the, as an audience do, but that could have been any other kid yeah. as far as the plot's concerned. And so it's not impactful in the moment to the people trying to save them outside of these are just some kids that are still in the building and we got to save the kids. Like, I think mm-hmm. that connection and establishing these characters as you know, more than just extras would have been more meaningful if someone on the scene had been like, fuck, I know that kid. We got to yeah. go get him, you know? Like if Samuel like had to run over there and then look up in the window and see him beating on the bars and then yeah. he run into the building and save him type shit. Yeah, and I mean, nobody wants to see kids get blown up, period, either way. So mm-hmm. obviously kids locked in a building that is potentially about to blow up is going to have people like scrambling to get them yeah. out. But yeah, like I... I wish they had established that a bit more. I do like that it flies in the face of the ideology of Zeus because at the beginning he's basically saying, you know, nobody's going to be there to help you and these Mm -hmm. kids are saved by the police officers. Yeah. Um, Ironically, one of them's a minority, though, because the one dude's Asian, isn't he? I think so. So, yeah. It's not the white lady will help you, not the white man. (laughs) The white lady and the Asian man. Um... And then his wife, like, I... Oh, McLean and Holly? Yeah. Like, I am thrilled that there's finally a diehard where saving Holly is not the focus. So I'm actually mm-hmm. kind of glad Holly isn't in this movie. It's not a damsel in distress at all. Yeah, because, yeah. yeah, the past two have literally been about, like, oh, Holly's in danger. we got to save Holly. And, like, after a while, it starts to feel gimmicky. Like, you can't yeah. just keep playing the same story. You guys line. have marriage issues, and now we have to save your wife, and then we're all going to hug at the end. And the cats are going to make a bunch of noise. Um... I don't like, though, because we've already kind of played this bit once already where um, him and Holly are separated. He's living in New York. She's living in L.A. And they haven't spoken to each other in months. And they're married but separated, living on opposite ends of the country. And come on, realistically, at that point, you're not really like you may not legally be divorced, but you're not really married anymore. Mm -hmm. If you live on opposite ends of the country and you don't even speak to each other at all. Which is hella weird, because he's got children, and he doesn't want to talk to his children. Yeah. Um, well, he spends films four and five making it up to them. 
Well, like, <laughs> I appreciate at the very least we established that tension in the first one and then, like, kind of to some extent get to know Holly. Like, the movie's mostly yeah. about um, Bruce's character, but we sort of get to know Holly. But then in this movie, we go right back to it. Like, in the second one, we established he was LAPD because that's how he introduces himself. So yeah. he moved to LA to be with his wife. And then now we've just jumped time and he's in New York and hasn't spoken to Holly or his children in a year, apparently. Um, And the only time it's ever brought up is for Bruce to be kind of pissed off about it or it's a little gimmick at the end. Mm -hmm. Oh, she's going to be pissed. I left her on hold. (laughs) You know, like... You haven't spoken to your wife or your children in a year. I'm a bit more mad. So what I like <laughs> is the implications of the character dynamic there. Like, they didn't develop that relationship, but they open it up, and it's like, oh, they're split up now, and John's a fucking nervous wreck. His career's, you know, pretty much over. He's been suspended. He's too drunk to come in. The entire movie's hung over because of this like depression that he's thrown himself into trying to cope with the events of the first two films and the loss of his wife. But we established like they got in a fight and he was too stubborn to call her, which I mean, I guess that goes both ways. It works with his character. (laughs) I guess that goes both ways. She was also too stubborn to call, but depending on what he said, maybe, you know, she wasn't in the mood to call, but like, I, I hate that she seems to be the catalyst of his character when she doesn't seem terribly relevant. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, having a wife and kids. Especially if knowing what happens in the fourth one, Holly really doesn't make a comeback even then. Like, he's still the estranged father yeah. to his daughter in that situation. So, like, there's no big coming together of their two characters yeah. even after this film. Like, that phone call doesn't fix the problem. Yeah. Know? Hey, so, honey, I saved another massive American city again. <laughs> yeah, so I'm just, like, what was the catalyst that led from him being LAPD back to NYPD and he hasn't spoken to his own children in a year? Like, we completely gloss over the fact that he moved back to New York because the fight that they had on the phone that he never spoke to her again after that clearly had to have been while he was already living in New York. So they had already had some kind of big falling out that led to him moving back so like i don't i don't like that they make holly seem like such a significant um like catalyst for how his character acts Mm -hmm. when she is in fact insignificant to the series yeah no i'm just saying that i i I think it's as far as to fill the space between two and three Mm -hmm. an interesting move like something has occurred here that we're not privy to um and he's real broken up about it. But I just, like, I, I feel like I would have liked to have delved into it a bit. Because, I mean, yeah, I've seen, it's, I think I've only seen it once and it's been years. But I have seen the fourth movie as well. Which is weird because I'm pretty sure I've never seen this one. So I somehow <laughs> skipped this one and went to four. Um, but yeah, there, there is no resolution to that ever. And I, I feel like this movie doesn't quite grasp... Um, or the series doesn't quite grasp like developing relationships among characters mm-hmm. outside of for the premise of this individual story. Like they yeah. don't seem to know how to connect it into an arc where it all goes together. Yeah, like they do, they do a good job of developing John. Yeah, but <laughs> across film, you know, yeah. like he starts off and it's like, oh, he's kind of an asshole, but he's lovable. And then two. I hate him. And then three, like, he's still got the edge of two, but he's got the funny that made me love him in the first yeah, film. seems kind of like a bumbling idiot. <laughs> I do like yeah. that, though, um, in this it one. It feels like a return to form for John McClane. Well, like in this one, I feel like he actually has kind of outgrown film one version of himself yeah. even. He's got like, the fading hair and the like the shirt doesn't <laughs> quite fit right. That's you. And he, he looks <laughs> like he is homeless and living on the street. But no, like it's not just um film number two felt like the same character, just a much weaker mm-hmm. film to represent that character. And this one felt like this character has been doing this for too long yeah. and this character's hardened and I'm this too character's old for better. This shit. Yeah. So like we kind of got you know, however many years down the road, what year did the first one come out? 1988, was it? So, damn near 10-ish years later, like a little under 10 years later, we've got 10 years worth of, like, 
hardness on this character's yeah. personality. So, like, he's not quite as goofy in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I like that, that, like, it's almost visibly like, oh, yeah, he's been on the streets for too long, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, he's been out here, like, living it up. So I, I like that this movie's kind of not just a return to a better formula, but, like, this character has actually grown. Yeah. It's like what I told you after we watched it. I could have been, I would be happier than hell if two never existed and we just had two diehards. If it was just diehard and diehard with a vengeance, it would be the perfect sequel. Mm-hmm. You know, but like five, seven years down the line, now he's lost Holly. Now he's estranged from his kids. Yeah. Now he's a drunk. You know, because it would have been so spaced out, you could just say that without really explaining it. Yeah. And Holly, I guess in that sense, would become a critical character because this is the second time he saved the world. And God damn it, the last time, you know, it was with my wife. So I need to call and apologize. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I haven't seen four in a long time. And like I said, I think I've only seen it once. see so. it this weekend. <laughs> so <laughs> assuming four is good, that then kind of still carries the story like in a way that feels a bit more thought out. Like, yeah, if you eliminate two, because then you have the phone call didn't go well. Him and Holly never got back together. Yeah. He wasn't a part of his kid's life. And now he's a really old, bitter man. Yeah. And he's trying so. to reconnect with his daughter while all this other shit's going on. Yeah. I, I do like, too, that um, I feel like this story feels a lot more adult than even Die Hard 1 It's did. a lot smarter. Yeah. Like, I think... And maybe it's just because I have a lot of respect for Alan Rickman as an actor. I think mm-hmm. Alan Rickman's performance and Hans as a bad guy... Can't be touched. <laughs> yeah, is significantly better than Simon's character. Yeah. I like the incorporation of the riddles, and I like that it's um, a smart premise to the movie. The bad guy is not as compelling. Well, maybe that's the fault of Alan Rickman in Die Hard 1 being one of the greatest action movie bad guys that's ever fucking been. To me... He's a phenomenal actor Yeah, to me, what I realized while I was watching this is I I honestly confused certain segments of this film with Speed from 1994, the Keanu Reeves vehicle. Um, In Speed... There's also a subway derailment, but the car comes out onto the road. And I could have sworn that that particular scene was in this movie. And why I think that is, is because there's a lot of connections between Simon Gruber and Dennis Hopper's character, the bad guy in Speed, where he's playing the jokes. Do you shoot the hostage? Do you shoot the hostage? (laughs) You know, like that kind of a dynamic. So like, it doesn't feel as original But that was the groundbreaking thing of the first Die Hard, Mm -hmm. was it was the most original goddamn action movie of all time. So maybe just we lose that because now we know the formula. Maybe. I do. I do. And Rickman was a bastard. Yeah, Rickman. (laughs) Yeah, Rickman will always have a special place in my heart. Um, I do Mm. like, though, that, like I said, much in the same way that um, McCain's character has kind of grown up a bit with the franchise. McLean, oh yeah, damn! It, I did that last. We've done time this too. in all three of the episodes. <laughs> McLean, John McCain, McCain was a senator. Whoever, whoever the fuck is in this movie, McLean. Uh, no, I don't think I don't think I've done it on the podcast. I keep doing it when we're off the podcast, though. Uh, McLean. Um, <laughs> I feel like the film itself got a bit more mature, like the incorporation of bombings and the idea mm-hmm. of bombing a school and. It's not just they're robbing just one business. They're robbing basically the free world. Yeah. And um, there's a lot. It hits even harder post 9-11. Like when they've got all these explosions happening in the streets in New York and then they're running away from the towers. Like it's fine. Well, I don't know if you. It aged beautifully. I don't know if you saw that whenever um, you were reading about this today, but apparently um, they were pretty much damn near done with production by the time it happened. But while they were still in production, the Oklahoma bombing happened. Yeah. Um, and so I guess there were rumors that there were more explosions in this movie and they had pulled some of it out, but mm-hmm. people confuse it with a different movie. I can't remember what the other movie was. So they did not, um, edit anything in this one, but I guess that was a talk they had to have. Like, ooh, is this insensitive? And um... With all the domestic terrorism, because you would have had, I believe, the 91 World Trade Center bombing happened in that city. Then the Oklahoma City bombing, Waco, was, you know, right around this time. Yeah, and the producers were like, 
we'd been working on this movie for longer. This idea existed before that stuff happened, and it's fiction. So the yeah. producers kind of stuck to their guns. It. Yeah, the producers stuck to their guns on this one, but. That is interesting that, yeah, it timed out at a time where that was a real fear people mm-hmm. were having. And so it is kind of like bigger, more real world problems versus, oh, somebody's robbing the yeah. tower, you know? Yeah, with terrorism, especially with race, like in this Ooh, film. Yeah. So so forward thinking. It's almost refreshing to see the Zeus character. I read two or three articles today and they were basically saying if Die Hard with a Vengeance came out in 2020, the internet would melt because nobody would know how to interpret Zeus's character, Zeus's relationship to McLean, his relationship to the police at large, going into Harlem at that period, you know, 1995. I don't think we're you could have to sign say what it said. Well, now. they 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 uh, <laughs> interestingly enough shot that in a white neighborhood and there was nothing on the sign the what, what what's written on the sign which i'm not gonna say um <laughs> had to be cgi added afterward but they're like we're not taking the film crew into harlem in 1995 no, <laughs> no I, and i don't think honestly you could put that on a sign in a movie now i yep. think people yeah. would get mad well the um, censored version um if you ever watch it on amc it just says i hate everyone Oh, really? Yeah. They don't even blur out the N-word. It just says, I hate everyone. (laughs) Um, Which makes the black guy's responses in Harlem a lot weirder. Yeah. Yeah, um, But I do like that. Yeah, because he does basically... That's such an interesting thing to be teaching, like, young kids in Harlem. Like, who do you not want help from? And instead of... Like, implying that they don't want help from the thug who's stealing the radios. He's like, oh, yeah. white guys. You don't want help from white guys. <laughs> Period. Send me a black cop. Yeah. And then that's so interesting, too, the reaction in the subway when the only thing Zeus's character does is yell at the dude to get off the phone. Yeah. I'm going to pick up the phone. Shoot me if you've got to fucking shoot me. <laughs> yeah. And, like, that's such a... Probably real world. Yeah, like a real world. Black guys get shot for cell phones, you know, a couple of times a month in our country. Yeah, the idea that, like, I mean, if I yelled at someone in a public setting, like a cop may go up or walk up to me and be like, ma'am, you need to settle down, you know, but like nobody's pulling a gun on me. And like the idea that the cop immediately goes to pull the gun and now he's. A black civilian who doesn't even like have a badge to be like, I'm helping the cops out. And he's just like, yeah. oh, fuck, what do I do? Like, everybody's going to die or I'm going to die. Yeah. And it's like a rookie white cop. So, like, the cop's shaking while he's... And you can tell Zeus has had a gun in his face before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the fact that when the train comes crushing through the mm-hmm. station, he grabs the cop and pulls the cop out of the and way. saves him. Yeah. Um... Such a dynamic fucking character in that regard. And 20 fucking five years ago. (laughs) I do think, though... um, Can you imagine getting away with the cardboard scene in the first act of the film before we know the premise? I do think, though... To introduce Samuel L. Jackson? (laughs) The scene in the fountain when Bruce calls Zeus racist would probably not go over well today. Well, that's the part that in a lot of the articles they visited, where it was like, here's a white cop telling a black guy that he's racist. And he is, to a degree, but it's justified. Yeah. So it's a very controversial dynamic that we have rolling there. Yeah. He hates white people because he's in Harlem. He's like 50. (laughs) And I don't don't feel like at any point in this franchise... um, McLean. <laughs> I started to say Bruce and then I was like, no, I can get the name right. Um, I don't think his character came across a racist at any point in the series because yeah. he... He's got Argyle and Powell. And... Yeah, he's mm-hmm. almost always had some uh, black character that... As Big offen- Johnson. As offensive as that's going to sound, has kind of been his sidekick character. Yeah. Um, so it's been kind of a racially forward series. Um, so I, I would say for sure I, I could understand him bristling at somebody calling mm-hmm. him racist when he's like, I've never acted racist, but like, yeah. But I, is that not the current conversation that we're having in America, largely? White people dealing with racist or racism and black people dealing with racism or maybe not a word of that weird. The, the conversation of race in 2020, yeah. uh, this is like a dagger right in the heart of both sides of it. Yeah. Because how many white people have you talked to? And they're like, I'm not racist. I have a black friend. It's mm-hmm. like a fucking hack joke. That's basically what McLean's saying here. He's like, no, I harbor no hate towards you. <laughs> I'm and trying to protect your fucking neighborhood. 
I don't think Meanwhile, the bomb that. was actually in Chinatown. Yeah, that was... <laughs> Which, that wasn't a racist thing, though. He just <laughs> knew he needed his help, and he was like, I'm gonna lie to him. Mm-hmm. Pull at his heartstrings. Which I called that. You were like, no, it was... Chinatown might be near. I was like, no, Chinatown's in a different area. I've never been to New York City. I have no fucking idea where Chinatown is. <laughs> but yeah, I don't think you could put in a movie today uh, a white dude calling a black dude racist, even if he might be biased. Yeah. I don't think you could put that in a movie. <laughs> Interestingly enough, also, kind of while I'm thinking about Samuel Jackson's character, I read a thing today where he said that's the closest thing to who he is. Like, he hardly had to act. And if you watch interviews about race with Samuel Jackson, he's Zeus. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> I actually got to remember what actor it was. They had tried to get someone else to do it initially, and he turned it down, and I think... Um, it was uh, Forrest Whitaker. Yeah. Um, I think Bruce Willis was the one who actually recommended that they hire uh, Jackson because they had already done... Um, Pulp Fiction. Yeah, the cats are going fucking crazy. I gave Our cat cats yet. are racist. We have a black cat and a white cat, and they're trying to kill each other to make a point here on this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and that's kind of neat uh, that they've had like such a good working relationship with each other because they're still both... I mean... Yeah. I don't know how old they are in this movie, but, like, Jackson looks very young in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, they've recently did Glass. So, like, they did all the M. Night Shyamalan oh, films together. Huh. No, Glass is really recent. But Unbreakable <laughs> was Samuel Jackson and Bruce Willis. Split I had still on, like, Bruce Willis. was still in, like, wasn't it? Did that come out back in the 90s? No, I'm just saying they, they continued their working relationship. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. I thought you meant like at the point of this. I was like, I feel like that was in the 2000s. Yeah, because no, no. Sixth Sense was 1996. I didn't care for, um, I don't think it was the first one where they introduced Glass, but the Unbreakable. Second. Split? Split's awesome. Maybe it's Unbreakable, yeah. I didn't Split's I didn't the one for... with the multiple personality disorder. Unbreakable's the Bruce Willis one that my mom walked out of the movie theater on because she didn't realize it was going to be a superhero movie. Which they think it was going to be. Well, I've never seen Unbreakable, and I've never seen Glass, because I didn't know Split was an M. Night Shyamalan film that had a fucking prequel and a sequel to it. I just loved Split. <laughs> I can't remember if it was Unbreakable or Glass. I feel like I maybe was okay with Unbreakable, so it may be Glass that I didn't like. But yeah, there was like one where they focused on his character a bit more, and it felt a bit gimmicky. On Bruce Willis's? No, um, the character Glass, like Sam Jackson's that, That's unbreakable. It's more about Samuel L. Jackson. He's like the bad guy who turns out to be the good guy because his bones are very brittle, so he can't stand up. He's trying to find a, no, a person who can't be destroyed, and Samuel L. Jackson's got this degenerative bone disorder. No, it is unbreakable, that's right, because no, he, Bruce Willis thinks he's his friend, and yeah. it turns out at the very end, he actually wrecked the train wrecked and killed, the train, killed his wife. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert, yeah. Uh, Jackson's character is actually an evil mastermind. He killed a bunch of people because he wanted to prove Bruce Willis was invincible. Yeah. Anyway, like <laughs> the Die Hard. Yeah. <laughs> But no, they, I love their dynamic. I wonder if they're friends. Do you think they hang out on Christmas and watch the movies? Probably not Christmas, but <laughs> they have each other's cell phone numbers for sure. Because <laughs> they've done a lot of stuff Pulp together. fiction. <laughs> anyway. Um, I like their return of a bad guy who has a purpose, too. Um, yeah. I think for sure, without a doubt... Even if the story isn't very good in number two, what kills the movie is that I don't give a flying fuck about the bad guy. Yeah, the bad guy's part of a massive operation. He's not Hans. And we don't even know the point of the operation either. Like, to literally. save the drug dealers. Yeah, but why? What do they get out of it? I don't know, because our foreign policy was really fucked up in 1992. <laughs> <laughs> like, that movie has like such a weak villain <coughs> that I think that's in part why... Bruce Willis seems like he's just a bumbling idiot the whole movie. Yeah. He's like, I don't even know who I'm fighting. Yeah, but much like Hans, Simon at least feels like he had a plan at the beginning of it to fuck with McLean and then kill him. Yeah. Where, like, the same thing with Hans. Hans goes in, knows that he has a plan. He can adjust step now that McLean's shown up. McLean's shown to the bad guy so early in the second film, the bad guy knows he's there as the plan's fucking unfolding. And he's like, yeah, no, whatever. <laughs> there's not this like personal um need you know hans has holly in his grip so mclean needs to intervene in three 
McLean has killed Hans. And so Simon is like, I've got to fuck up the dude who killed my little brother. You know? <laughs> Am I making sense? Like, there's a triangularity to mm. one and three that isn't there in two. I have mixed feelings, though, about him being Hans's brother. I'm all ears. So, on the one end, I think, especially after the bad taste, too, probably left in some people's mouth, um, it's a nice throwback to kind of reconnect with the audience to be like, oh, you remember Hans? Hans Booby? So, it's kind of... I didn't tell you that that was the brother... Like we were sitting there watching it, and you called it. I think at some point you were like Hans Booby, but it was like five minutes before the actual. Yeah, because I was like, he sounds a lot like him, and yeah, I was like, this feels kind of personal. So that I, I kind of saw it coming. Yeah, he's a little pissed off. I threw his brother off the thirty-second <laughs> floor of the Nakatomi Plaza. <laughs> but like, I think that's kind of a nice like aside for fans of the original movie to kind of be like, all right, we're we're taking a step back and kind of reconnecting with our roots here. Um, I don't know for sure if I would have... Because sequels typically come out so quickly after a blockbuster. Like, they try to rush that sequel out. I don't know if immediately going back to the Gruber family as the main villain would have been the move for the second movie. Mm -hmm. I kind of like that there is a gap in the middle. I just think movie number two was not the movie that should have been there. Yeah. Period. Because um, I, I think, again, similar in having Holly being the damsel in well, distress. Imagine the second film doesn't exist. You would have had like a seven-year gap. And you would have been like, oh my god, they brought back Hans's brother. It might have been a bit predictable. Yeah. <laughs> they wouldn't have let it go, though. They wanted that money. Mm-hmm. Um, spilling beers? Spilled a beer. <laughs> um, I, I feel On like... my penis. <laughs> I feel like immediately going... Back to, oh, we couldn't come up with a new and compelling villain, so now it's villain's brother. It might have been like a bit tacky, because it's like, oh, we're just kind of replaying the same story here, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like the fact that there was a gap, and McLean has had time to kind of forget and get a little bit older and kind of move on with his no. life, and then whenever he shows up, he's like, oh my god, he had a brother, <laughs> you know? like it, it feels a bit more like, Jesus Christ, like how long has he been planning his revenge? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, f- I feel like maybe there needed to be some space in between these two. Like, I wish there had been a better villain and a better story in film number mm-hmm. two. Um, and I, I think you can't. I, I don't remember who the bad guy is in four, and I don't think I've ever seen five either. I don't think you can go back to the Gruber family ever again after no, this. No, you can't, and they don't. Four is an incredible bad guy. I can't remember the actor's name right now, but he's really fucking good. You can tell he's trying to do Hans, but he's an American. You know, like he's, he's he's very methodical in everything that he does, and it's very cyber technology in Four. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, no, you can't ever go back to the Gruber. Because it starts to feel, like, super gimmicky. Well, at this point, yeah, it would be our grandfathers fighting each other <laughs> if they went back to the Gruber family. And I, I read somewhere, which seems a bit harsh, like something along the lines of they were saying this bad guy wasn't fit to tie Alan Rickman's shoes or something <laughs> along those lines. It was pretty mean. I was like, that's a bit harsh. But simultaneously, <laughs> can I can I use this right now to explain the gallon jug issue? Mm-hmm. All right, cool. So it we... Paused it and rewatched it and paused it and rewatched it. And I'm famous for my complete lack of understanding of mathematics. So I'm going to do this for you guys. Just I'm sorry if it got thrown in at a weird spot. Yeah, because they did not represent this well in the movie. Yeah, so this is the breakdown from ScreenCrush.com. It says, assuming you're not sitting next to an explosive device that will explode in five minutes and you're not as bad as math as I was in the eighth grade, it's actually not a very difficult problem. So here's the solution. You fill the five-gallon jug. You fill the three-gallon jug with the water from the five-gallon jug, which now contains two gallons of water. Empty the Keeping three- in mind, you can't spill a single drop. <laughs> exactly. Empty the three-gallon jug, then pour the two gallons from the five-gallon jug into it. Fill the five-gallon jug. Pour the five-gallon jug into the three-gallon jug until it is full. The three-gallon jug already had two gallons in it, so the one additional gallon leaves four gallons in a five-gallon jug. Granted, there's a cutaway sequence, which I think is brilliant. 
<laughs> so like you're given the math problem and then you're distracted and then McLean comes back into the screen they're and he's fighting. like yeah and it's like in 10 seconds he breaks that whole fucking thing down and then they're pouring water and then Kristen and I for the next 15 minutes are mathematically trying to wrap our heads around it while they're driving around shooting at people yeah. <laughs> I, I do kind of weirdly like that though because I, I didn't know the elephant joke either apparently the punchline is because uh, it's like what has four legs and likes to travel. And apparently that's like a dad joke in the punchline <laughs> is an elephant because it's got four legs and a trunk. Um, and I kind of like that this movie doesn't like treat you like you're stupid. It's like, cause I feel like in a panicked moment where there's a bomb going off and we're trying to solve it, I'm not going to tell you the punchline to the joke. I'm going to be like, it's the fucking elephant, you moron. Let's go. Yeah. You know, like I, I kind of like that they don't purposely spoon feed the riddles to yeah. you. And then they also, if I'm, Remembering where the elephant joke comes in, that's when they're on the payphone, right? And then he tells them that the bomb is going off in the payphone because he got the answer wrong. No, that's the joke about the dude traveling. Yeah, to he's got Saint seven Ives. lives and seven lives and <laughs> traveling to St. Ives, yeah. Um, and yeah, the punchline to that, well, which they do kind of tell you that one, um, is that the dude is the only one traveling. He saw mm-hmm. the other people on the way from St. Ives while he was going, so they do kind of tell you the answer to that one. But no, the elephant's at the fountain, because mm-hmm. they're looking for where the bomb is, and then there's an elephant on top of the fountain. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they don't tell you the answer to the riddles outright, and like, I kind of like that, because yeah, like in real world, I feel like if life and death is at stake, you wouldn't take the time to explain it. You'd be like, we gotta go! (laughs) This is the way it is. Yeah, so I I do appreciate that, but yeah, the way they shot the jug scene, I was like, what? It was so fast. We (laughs) we kept playing it back and forth, but I think it's indicative of the what I like about Simon as a character is you're saying they're not spoon feeding you. If you can't keep up, you can't keep up. Go back and watch it a second time. <laughs> I like that they show uh, McLean and Zeus fighting in the fountain though about it, like basically <laughs> telling each other they're both idiots. And I'm like, that's an adult problem. You're like, fucking math. <laughs> so I do like that. But yeah. I, I appreciate the smartness of this movie and the smartness of the villain. Um, mixed feelings about whether or not we're borrowing too much from the original with just a more adult problems. I feel like we borrowed less from the original than we did in two with this one. Even if we brought back Hans's brother. And we, we both both agree two sucked. <laughs> two, two's terrible. Um, the terrible two. Um I feel like it borrowed less. There's one elevator sequence, right? But it goes different than all the other elevator sequences. There's one shaft that he goes through when the flood hits and the fucking tunnel and he's got to go up the shaft. But you don't get him again with the fucking Zippo lighter. You know, I feel like a goddamn pastry or whatever he said. I don't like that they keep calling back (coughs) Yippie-ki-yay, though. You don't like Yippie-ki-yay? Like, it was very effective in the first movie. Yippie-ki-yay, motherfucker. But now it's like, (laughs) it's his gimmicky punchline that he uses just when he kills a villain in general. And, like, Yippie-ki-yay, motherfucker, was his warning to Hans. Like, nobody died when he said it in the first movie. He was like, I'm coming for you. Then Hans says it back as a warning to him. Yeah. But, yeah, like, I I don't like... Because then it becomes very gimmicky. It's his punchline, like, killed ya. You know? (laughs) Like, it makes no sense. I like it as an action trope, though. Because it's like... Everybody who's going to see Die Hard after the first three... You're waiting on the yippie kaye. Yeah. But it makes sense. One of the best yippie kayes is in four. Do you remember the number four? No, then I'm not going to tell it to you. But one of my favorite yippie kaye moments, the first one, obviously. I think four is the second best yippie kaye moment. Three, the third best yippie kaye moment. I killed your brother. Yippie kaye, motherfucker. Yeah, three for me because it's a callback to the fact that they are related um well i mean like he's literally killing hans's brother and it makes a bit more sense in two it makes no sense whatsoever and it feels tacky in two Mm -hmm. so i i don't know i I wonder if this moment or this franchise has moments where it's very smart and moments where it's like "Mm, we are just yeah we're just falling (laughs) on action tropes here aren't we um how do you feel as a writer about the fact that as an audience we get to see the story before the characters get to see the story? Can you give me an example? 
So at the opening of the film... Um, Can we talk about that bomb? <laughs> well, not the literal opening. Okay. Um, <laughs> at the opening-ish of the film, where we're bit. still... Can we talk about the in opening? In a little bit. Okay. Um, when we're still establishing kind of the premise and who the bad guys and stuff are, they blow up the subway um, mm-hmm. and send all the cops kind of scattering, looking for this bomb in the schools. And we as an audience get to see um, Simon literally on camera be like, oh, they fell for it. Now they're <laughs> out of the way, let's do this. And then they openly admit whenever um, Samuel Jackson and Bruce Willis's characters don't go to the stadium, he's like, ah, oh, damn, we set up this fun little thing. But you can tell it's like irrelevant little side games you set yeah. up and like there's not some bomb that's going to kill people at the stadium. Like it was all set up just so he could distract them to do his bigger scheme and we're the only ones who know it because mm-hmm. they killed off the radios so they can't talk to each other. And so even as Bruce or the other cops are kind of figuring this stuff out, not everybody knows. So I, I, are you, we spend a huge time. If I'm following movie. you correct, it's, would this be another good example, right? So the Fed is getting robbed. Mm-hmm. Um, Zeus is on his way into the building, gets waved over by the fake cops. We know they're fake cops mm-hmm. because they're on air having the conversation with Simon about whether or not to kill Zeus. They take the bomb and we're kind of left. Is that what you mean? Yeah, but that's kind of how the whole movie is, though. It's like all these moments of we know more than the characters know. Like, we know when Zeus goes to the stadium that there are shooters waiting for him and that they're following him afterwards. So we know that when he links back up with uh, Bruce Willis's character that they're about to start getting shot at. Like, mm-hmm. we already know that's coming because we know Zeus is being tailed. And... Neither of the characters know what's happening instead of... I think it adds tension to certain points because you're like, oh my God, they could decide to just kill Zeus right now. Like if we didn't have Zeus going in um, and then talking to the cops and handing the bomb over, like if he just started walking over there and then they shot Zeus, you know what I mean? Like we wouldn't, we'd be robbed of all that tension in the scene and there's no payoff because they don't shoot Zeus. They send him on his merry way. Um, but there's something in that tension and are they going to do it? Does Simon give a fuck about Zeus? (laughs) I don't, it's an interesting question. I've not thought about it, but I've also not thought about it when I think about Hans, because you get a similar, like back and forth between him and his need for the detonators. <laughs> but, like in the first film. But I feel like in the first film, shit kind of just happens as it happens. Like the bad guys just like spring up and then suddenly we're in a fist yeah. fight, you know? Or like there is that instance where he runs into Hans and Hans lays on the accent. Mm-hmm. And um, we kind of have that moment of as the audience, so we know Hans is the bad guy, but they don't linger in that moment for very long. Like Bruce figures. True. It, I, I think I see what you're saying. Like Bruce figures him out pretty quickly, but like Simon is openly walking around, like using an American accent and hanging out with the cops. And like, we know throughout most of the movie, yeah. he's a bad guy. He's robbing the bank. Um, the school thing is kind of a wild goose chase, which we don't know for sure that there's not a real bomb until the, Dude trying to defuse it gets mm-hmm. sprayed with, like... Maple syrup. Yeah, or whatever it is. <laughs> um, so that's, like, one of the few moments where, like, they let the tension just sit. But, like, a lot of what's happening to these characters, we already know, mm-hmm. like, it's happening. Like, even whenever Bruce Willis is going to try to find Zeus in the boat, like, we already know Zeus has been captured by the bad guy. So, like, we get to see almost everything before Bruce's character that's does. That's an interesting question. I almost want to sit on it. Like, I don't... How do you feel about it? I, I don't know. Like, I feel like this movie kind of effectively, like, builds tension in a way where it's like, will he, won't he? So, like, as an audience, we're like, oh, we know what the bad guy's doing, but what choices is he going to make? Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like they're good on that end. I do feel like on other stuff, though, it does kind of take away from what's considered, I guess, like, tropey action um like surprises or whatever like a lot of the time in like action movies or scary movies or whatever like you get the bang and the dude pops out or whatever and where... then he slowly explains the plan yeah i foiled you <laughs> 10 moves ago in our chess game yeah. yeah and so we're kind of being it's being revealed to us later but like yeah with this like whenever um 
Zeus gets tailed while leaving the stadium. It's like, oh, well, clearly he's going to reconnect with Bruce and they're both going to get shot at later. Like, that's mm-hmm. obviously something that's coming. So, like, when it does happen, like, you still kind of get that effective because who knew it was going to be him getting shot out of a a tunnel in the ground and <laughs> Zeus was going to be conveniently driving by when it happened. Um, so it's not like I saw it coming in that way, but it was like as soon as they saw each other, I was like, oh, the bad guys are about to show up, you yeah. know? So, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it. I feel like it takes away some of the kind of surprise element, but at the same time, it kind of leaves a feeling of almost like we're one of the, like, lackeys on the bad guy's side. Do you think it helps or hinders the riddles? Like, because some of the riddles are so complicated and so fast. You're just trying to keep up with them. And so a lot of the action, you know, it's like, oh, it it humanizes Simon instead of just turning him into this weird, I'm obsessed with a child's game. I don't know, honestly. Like, I think it's a cool thought. I don't know, honestly, that the riddles were executed um, really effectively. Like, the riddle about the president, um, and for one, never would have gotten there, um... But I guess when the movie came out, like, the 42nd president was currently in office, I think was what I was reading. That would Um, have been Clinton, yeah. So, like, I guess maybe if you were watching this movie back in 95, like, that might have been a thought in your mind. I never would have gone, they're talking presidents, because he doesn't give you any hint to guess that's what he means. All he says is what's 21 from 42, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't even catch, I literally didn't realize that until I was reading notes later, that the school that had the quote-unquote bomb in it was named for the 21st president. Yeah, that probably would have been a bit more obvious. It's like when I try to play Trivial Pursuit with my mom, but she's got an addition that's 20 years old, and it's like, I don't know who the fuck was on the Austrian soccer team in 1936. Like, I have no fucking clue. Like, they say the 21st president's name out loud, but I didn't even, like, literally didn't even notice that was the name of the school. So, like, Mm -hmm. I feel like some of the riddles, honestly, just aren't terribly effective. Like, I think it's a cool like premise i i just think yeah they're kind of like sped through and glossed over and not like at the end of the day it's still an action movie so they're not kind of relevant as in depth to the overall plot of the movie so they kind of get lost oh and how do you feel about them about the riddles yeah i I, i've I, i compare everything to this goddamn movie but i love it um Early rendition of Jigsaw. Very early rendition. Like that kind of a character. Where it's like, I've thought this through. I know where I need you to be in the city so that I can drive the gold home. So here's some games for you to play while I do the big stuff. (laughs) If you think about them, right? They're basic math, history, English... They're very basic questions that you would see in a trivia thing for like an eighth grader in 1995, who was the 21st president. But like some of them too aren't like the get to this location by this time, but you can only use this type of transit. And we establish he's not watching them at all. Except for the first time. Yeah. And the second time. But like, they're, it's like, why didn't you tell that fat woman to get off the phone? <laughs> yeah, but there are like instances where we establish that like he's literally just saying stuff to them to say stuff to them, mm-hmm. and like it kind of relies on how much they buy into it, and so then the problem there is as an audience member where we're being given almost all of the information. The further we get into the movie, the more I'm like, oh, this is just a wild goose chase and this riddle isn't relevant and this location isn't relevant and the means of transportation you use to get there isn't relevant. So then, I don't know, I wonder if that takes away some of the impact. Well, secondary question for you, to play off your question, because there was an alternate ending that was shot. There were two alternate endings that were in the thing. One was so ridiculous they didn't bother shooting it. And one involves... Simon gets away with it and moves to Hungary. (laughs) And Bruce loses his pension. He gets fired. He's under suspicion of um, being a part of the whole goddamn thing to begin with. And he hunts down Simon 
and gives him McLean says, you know, which is he takes a stripped down Chinese rocket launcher with no directional arrows and starts asking Simon riddles that are very American, very old school, very smoking cigarettes and watching Captain Kangaroo, you know, <laughs> ask. And in that regard, that would have been a better ending. If we're talking about the substance of the riddles as being simple in yeah. life and death. Mm -hmm. But it's way too diehard too to work in this film. I think this film ends beautifully because it has the I killed your brother, yippee ki -yay, motherfucker. <laughs> I don't like, I will say, I feel like we jumped the sh shark a bit. Um, I don't like that... He just so happens to throw him an aspirin from a hotel that they were staying at and they just on a whim or whatever it was, a storage unit, whatever it is they were using, they just on a whim all show up there and they're all there at the Canadian border Yeah. just so he can blow up the helicopter like that last 10 minutes. I was like, mm, <laughs> like, could we have not just caught him while he was still there in new yeah. york yeah. yeah well that's the the same ending like basically the way he gets to believe quebec is because he's able to trace the packing number at the bottom of the aspirin bottle in the extended cut it just leads to a pharmacy in hungary and then he somehow flies to hungary without his pension or a job and uh, kills this guy with a chinese rocket launcher <laughs> which is definitely jumping the shark way more but yeah i, I feel like it felt like Second ending to the movie. First ending was like, well, you're still alive. Second ending's like, oh, I got the aspirin. Yeah. Well, like, the, they did the same thing in two and in a certain regard in one. Like, there's a, this the need to make... The pops up at the tail end. Yeah, yeah. This need to, like, draw Die Hard out. Instead of cutting it two hours, you need to go 2.15. And it's like, the last 15 minutes is just so we can kill the bad guy. I mean, that's the only reason why it exists. Like, there is sort of, like, that moment feels kind of dumb. Um, there is sort of some redemption to one, though, where, like, the bad guy who was being choked to death yeah. pops back up because then Pal's like, I found my courage to shoot <laughs> you. But then Pal never really... Carl. Carl's the bad guy. Oh, Carl's the bad guy. I was like, the character's name is Pal, isn't it? Um, or Al, or I don't know, whatever his name is. Powell is his last name, yeah. What's his first name? Is it Al? Not even any Carl, I believe Carl Powell. Oh, no, no, I don't know. <laughs> Carl's the bad guy. I'm, I've had a few. Uh, but either way, like yeah, the the bad guy that won't die that pops back up in the ending is kind of gimmicky. But like at least there's like some redemption there where it's like the desk cop who shot a kid and retired his uniform is now saving the day. <laughs> and then and this one is just like oh we just went and. Blew up a helicopter for fun. <laughs> because it's awesome. Because in the last one, they blew up a whole shitload of planes. Well, that was dumb, too. <laughs> that was dumb, too. Can I ask you one final question? No. Feel free to go long form if you'd like. I can crack that beer for you, my love. Okay, so this is a theme that we've talked about in all three movies. Okay, so the first movie is in one skyscraper. Mm -hmm. And it feels very claustrophobic. The second film is in an airport and kind of in a neighborhood, and then there's a church, and there's all these other elements, and it loses the claustrophobia. The third film is all of New York, and it somehow gets the same claustrophobic feel that I felt in The Skyscraper. Is that the director? Because we return with... Uh, the director from the first film is that the pacing where it feels like we have to keep moving. We have to keep moving. There's no time to rest, which was also in the first film and lacked in the second film. Or did, did you feel the same way at all? Did you feel a sense of claustrophobia because it's so much in cars? Am I making sense? I think it's mostly in the premise of the story for me because, um, which, I mean, I guess part of that is pacing, too, but it's pacing of the story, I guess, for me. Um, you get the sensation that Simon is everywhere, and really what's happened is That's a great Simon, way of putting it. Like, really what's happened is Simon had these plans that he laid out ahead of time. Um, 
so all of this was pre-established and pre like in motion before McLean gets introduced to the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but when McLean gets introduced, he doesn't have the knowledge of the situation that's going on. So initially it's just like, there's just this one bomb. You've got to stop this one bomb, but now surprise, there's this bomb over here and this bomb over here. And also we're stealing this over here. So yeah. by the time McLean gets introduced into the action of the story. The story's been in motion already. So you get the sensation of Simon literally being everywhere in the mm-hmm. city when it's Simon has these set plans that are unfolding one after another. Um, so I think part of it's the genius of the story and the fact that Simon as a bad guy is like, oh, well, step one's done on to step two. You know? <laughs> so... Yeah, I think it's mostly the story. Like, you have this expansive setting, but this extensive plan has gone out. Or we can tear through Central Park, but I feel like I'm in that car. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. I think it's more, yeah, the structure of the story. Like, we have the sensation of being in this very large setting and not being able to escape this one person. So I... Yeah, I would say, I guess maybe it is a claustrophobic film, but in a sensation of there is no place you can hide. I think that's what I like about it, was it gave you the same sort of, like, edgy, it can come from nowhere that the first one gave, that the second one didn't. Hmm. Like, the first one, its ventilation shaft feels claustrophobic, because where the fuck is Hans? The second one, he takes back the ventilation shaft, and he's tagging people from the shaft, and we lose that claustrophobic element. Here, it doesn't feel like McLean's in control. He's doing his character thing that he did in the first film much more than the second, where he keeps calling himself an asshole. He's talking to himself to reassure himself. He needs to build himself up as a man before he does some crazy shit. (laughs) I think it's claustrophobic in different ways, and I think that's where, if you're writing a story, um, something you have to analyze as far as, like, people's personal feelings go and reactions to situations, like... Uh, film number one is claustrophobic very much in a way where it's like being in the elevator shaft trapped. Like it's claustrophobic because you can't leave. Um, literally the whole building gets barred up and you can go up as far as you want to, but you can't escape up there and you can't go downstairs. (laughs) Yeah. Like McLean can hide, um, but he cannot leave period. Um, where versus three, it's the opposite problem. It's like, you can go wherever you want to go. I will be there. Nice way of putting it. Like, I, I think it's a, what's your fear of you can't literally escape or you can't figuratively escape. I love that. That's my analysis. (laughs) Can I get one more analysis? Uh, sure. (laughs) I haven't looked down at the notes. Have we covered everything? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, the opening sequence, that boppy music, you know, I don't know why I said boppy, boppy. I sound like an old white guy, <laughs> but like, Bop. like that upbeat, like, Hey, we're going into die hard three. And then like mid beat, boom. And there's no CGI in that shot. That's old school filmmaking. They probably had those cars set on goddamn springs and stunt drivers in every fucking lane and smoke bombs to, but it feels like an explosion. Mm-hmm. In the middle of this happy state, cut to McLean hungover getting debriefed, you know, or whatever we cut to there, either that or to the pawn shop. <coughs> Interesting callback to Pulp Fiction. <laughs> but what do you think about that opening sequence? We've got all these like stock footage shots, and then you think you're in the middle of another stock footage shop, and the goddamn store goes up like that. How do you feel on that? I mean, I think it's a good opening. It's, um, I mean, it grabs your attention. It's definitely, I think, especially in comparison to number two, at least, a much faster moving, like now we're in the action and now we're going mm-hmm. movie, where if I'm remembering right, I think two, we were kind of focused on like, oh, McLean showing up at the airport and people news are stories, recognizing him. <laughs> new stories of. This dude, like, being extradited, and clearly, obviously, that's going to be a catalyst later on, but, like, we don't get action until the guys go into the baggage claim area or whatever it is, and, um, 
again, kind of similar sensation that I was talking about a minute ago, like the bomb goes off that has been set already by Simon. So we're kind of like Simon's already here. This is already Simon's playground and welcome to the story. And so we enter it like McLean, a little hungover from the last film. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. And now here we are, and we've got to snap back into action because we're no longer fucking around. Like the bomb, it, it's like that, that, is it Children of Men movie that I reference all the time? That opening sequence gets mm. his cup of coffee, leaves the coffee shop, coffee shop explodes. Mm. <laughs> You've established your world, as we like to say on here. Um Immediately, you've shattered this image of, oh, I'm going in here to watch a dumb action film. It's like, no, here's, you know, beautiful shot, beautiful shot, beautiful bop. (laughs) Very well done. Very well done. Do you have final thought there, love? It's much better than number two. (laughs) By far. You ready to go eat some chili? Yes, I'm hungry. Are you excited to watch it? I, I won't make you watch five unless we can find five in the grocery store or on Amazon or one of you guys wants to send it to us. And if you do that, I'll be confused as to where you got my address. Um, <laughs> we want to do one more of them? Yeah. Live well, free or die hard? Yeah. I've seen it before. I Like, I vaguely remember... Um, he picks up his daughter for some reason and drives her home and she's like angry and yelling at opening. him. Yeah, yeah, I vaguely remember that and that's about it. <laughs> yeah, and then he meets another, I think it's a comic actor, plays the hacker that runs the whole, like not the bad guy hacker, but the good guy foil, like the Samuel L. Jackson of this uh, fourth film. We'll so, have yeah. to give it a go. We'll have to give it a go. Got to do it, love. What do you think so far about these types of shows? Do you like them? Yeah, I mean, I. this is not an on-air discussion. Okay, well, we'll have a conversation about it off-air. I love you, sweetheart. I love you. And I love you guys. And we will talk to you on Friday, maybe Saturday, probably Sunday. Probably Sunday around 3 Mountain Time. <laughs> da-dum, 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 da-dum. 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 <laughs> <laughs>